This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, October 14th. I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, San Miguel County in COVID holding pattern, discussing domestic violence in and around San Miguel County, Telluride voters talk questions 2D and 300, and a mountain weather forecast. San Miguel County is in a bit of a holding pattern when it comes to its COVID-19 response. That's according to Public Health Director Grace Franklin. She says the county is still waiting to hear more about Moderna and Johnson & Johnson booster shots and Pfizer vaccine approval for those 5 to 11 years old. As we're waiting for more information and guidance, we're in a bit of a holding pattern, sticking to the best practices, the five commitments the indoor mask um, mandate that we have currently through um, the rest of this month, and we'll be um, keeping a close eye on everything. On Thursday, an FDA advisory panel voted to recommend a Moderna booster to those 65 years and older and individuals at high risk. Additional information about the J&J vaccine is still coming down the pike, as is information about the Pfizer vaccine for young people. But Franklin notes public health is gearing up for administering vaccines to children. We can't pre-order. Once it's approved, the state will get allocated um, doses and the state will then just ship it to all the um, public health agencies. And when we get them, we get them. But we'll be notified probably four days in advance. So we have a lot of scenarios and plans in place to launch into action as soon as we have this, provide education and answer questions um, before the clinic starts. Since San Miguel County is in a wait-and-see mentality when it comes to COVID vaccines, Franklin says the best thing people can do is get their flu shot. If you get the flu vaccine, you're less likely to be hospitalized. If you got infected, you're, less, uh, you're more likely to have mild symptoms. And the even better piece is you're less likely to get sick at all with the flu. She says that's important on a personal level. Nobody wants to get sick, but also on a public health level as the county gears up for a potential twindemic with hospital beds full from COVID and the flu. Our hospital systems are really strained right now. We're, we're moving along and making things work, but um, with staffing shortages, exhaustion, transfers, and beds being full, um, when you stack things on top of one another, um, what are those greater implications and how will this affect how our hospitals are able to treat um, flu and COVID and then anything else that's going on, whether it's um, necessary surgeries, trauma, or um, other emergencies. With flu and COVID symptoms looking similar, Franklin adds, if you're sick, the only way to know what you have is to get a test. But having both the flu and COVID vaccine is the best way to get you back to daily life as soon as possible. The key piece is if you're feeling sick um, to get a COVID test, if you're feeling really sick, go see your provider. And they can also do flu tests, strep tests, all those other pieces and really get a better sense of what's going on. And then this is part of the divide, too, of... um, life if you're fully vaccinated um, versus if you're not. Um, If you are fully vaccinated, you have a negative COVID test. Um, There's a little bit more data points there um, to support that it could be something else where if you're unvaccinated, best practice is to stay home for 10 days regardless. San Miguel County will hold a number of flu and COVID vaccine clinics in the coming weeks. There will be COVID vaccine clinics on Friday, October 15th in Telluride, and in Norwood on Thursday, October 21st. 
There will be a joint COVID flu vaccine clinic in Telluride on Friday, October 22nd. Flu clinics will also take place in Norwood on Thursday, October 21st, and in Telluride on Thursday, October 28th. Registration for flu and COVID vaccine clinics is available at sanmiguelcountyco.gov. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates about one in four women and almost one in ten men have experienced sexual or physical violence and or stalking by an intimate partner. To better understand the impacts domestic violence has on our region, KOTO spoke with Shannon Dean, Executive Director of the San Miguel Resource Center. For starters, can you give our listeners just a brief overview of the impact domestic violence has in our community? Yeah, it's one of those things where a lot of people in small towns think that, you know, this isn't something that happens in our town. Um, But really, in reality, it's just something that people don't talk about in small towns. Um, Just kind of as an example, this year alone, from January to September, the San Miguel Resource Center has served 113 survivors of domestic violence. Wow. What is the behavior we're talking about when we talk about domestic violence? So the bottom line is power and control over an intimate partner. So any behaviors that seek to gain power and control or maintain power and control. So that could be emotional, financial, religious, physical, sexual, all of those components can be used. But like I said, at the core, it is maintaining control over another person, their actions, the things that they do, their comings and goings, their finances, things like that. Um, for the people in our in our region experiencing domestic violence going through this, what are some of the resources that are available to them? So San Miguel Resource Center specifically covers um, San Miguel County and the west end of Montrose. It's a little over a thousand square miles. And we provide just general individual advocacy. So that means that survivors can come in for emotional support. Um, We can help with things like filling out paperwork, filling out uh, protection orders. We offer safe housing. So if someone is not feeling safe in their own home and they need somewhere that is um, strictly confidential to be for a few days, we offer up to five nights of safe housing. Also therapy assistance, Um, legal assistance for things like divorce, custody, um, court accompaniment to those hearings because it can be very scary. How do finances fit into that? How Do people have to pay for those services? Are they free? No, everything that we provide is absolutely free. Um, San Miguel Resource Center is largely grant funded as well as from donors in our community. Is there any advice that you can offer listeners who maybe haven't experienced domestic violence but maybe know someone who has or feel they have a friend who might just ways that listeners can can support folks in their lives who, who are going through this? I think the best advice that I can give is listen and believe. In our society, we're so quick to minimize. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, well, he didn't hit you, did he? Um, Things like that. And first of all, those things just aren't helpful for a survivor. But it also causes them to question that reality. You know, am I overblowing this? Is it not as big of a deal as I feel like it is? And that's part of the abuse. That's part of perpetuating the abuse. And then, you know, just believing someone when they tell you that something is going on. Um, Victim blaming is really a problem in our society. So, you know, 
a, a victim of domestic abuse is constantly blaming themselves anyway. What did I do to get myself into this? What could I have done differently? And you constantly ask those questions as a victim. And so once you get to the point where you've finally worked up the courage to tell someone, because it's incredibly terrifying to tell someone that you're being abused, then, you know, if, if whoever you tell doesn't listen and believe, you're just adding to the shame and adding to the silence. And that's, that silence is one of the most powerful tools an abuser can use. Shannon Dean is the executive director of the San Miguel Resource Center. The center's 24-hour helpline is available at 970-728-5660. Housing is on the ballot this November in Telluride in the form of two ballot questions. Question 300 asks voters if they want to reduce short-term rental licenses in town to 400, with some exceptions, and distribute those licenses through an annual lottery. Question 2D asks if they want to cap short-term rental licenses where they are for two years and double short-term rental business license fees to help pay for affordable housing. The two questions are separate, and both could pass or not. With ballots sent out and a little less than three weeks till Election Day, KOTO hit the streets to find eligible Telluride voters and see how they're thinking about the two questions. Yes on 300, no on 2D. I don't see, from my perspective, how 300 is going to help the local community, um, local housing or businesses. I feel like 2D is more reasonable. I'm thinking no on both of them. My name is Rebecca Newman. I live in Telluride. I've lived here since 99. Stash Wasaki. Debbie Pruitt from Telluride. <laughs> if you limit short-term rentals, you have these people that come in at Christmas that are dropping $1,000 a day or more on ski instruction, you know, Alpino Vino, whatever, so they are dropped a lot of money in the economy. If we limit that, we're going to limit the resources and the income to the town and the mountain village, which will affect the businesses and that's the local workers. Affordable housing is obviously a huge issue. Restaurants are closing because they can't find employees. So I don't know what the answer is, but I just don't feel like these, you know, affecting people's real estate is the way to go about it. Jennifer Ogilvy. As of right now, I am in favor of raising business licenses, and I am in favor of raising those fees and capping the limit where we are. I am currently uncertain on how I will vote on 300. I'm definitely going to vote 300. Shannon Farrell. The other 2D just to me gives me the wrong vibe, and I don't think that it's... I guess I, I don't know enough about either, like, statistic and data-wise to like really speak to it, but that's just kind of where I'm at, how I'm feeling. I wish that people could come together a little bit more and focus on the bigger picture and not worry so much about the bottom line and town's going to be fine if we put a cap on short-term rentals. Yes on 300, no on 2D. I think it's uh, a shame that, you know, there's two competing proposals, but uh, it seems very clear that one really works to reduce the amount 
not just cap it and where we're at now is not a sustainable level. Basically, I think 300 is to stop and put a halt to the tourism that's going on. And I don't know that it's any type of situation that's a long-term solution. Yes, we need to balance healthy businesses but also a healthy community and continue to prioritize and make sure that the folks who live here are able to do that. And it's not just servers workers, it's nurses and doctors and teachers. I think more affordable housing needs to be built. I do not think that taking away the property rights of people that already own here is the way to do it. We're at a real crisis point and we need to do lots of things and we cap lots of things in this town, right? We cap the number of liquor stores and the number of bars and we cap the number of weed shops. Seems to make sense we just cap the number of Airbnbs. I'm 42D more because it's an option to 300. I don't necessarily fully support 2D either. I wish that we had just tried to counteract 300 and not created 2D. I think it's going to get confusing. My name is Gabe Lifton-Zolin. Karina Gordon. Hi, I'm Lindsay Poirier. Um, I own Dirt Dog here in Telluride, Colorado. It's a really tough question just because both sides of the vote affect people that I know um, closely. Being a local here and seeing a lot of my friends struggle with the housing situation has been difficult. Um, that being said, I know I have a lot of clients that come to the shop that also use their space and rent it out for short-term rentals to be able to afford it because they don't sit on a lot of money like the assumption for most of them. But the way heavily sways me towards supporting like those who I love like near and dear and want to keep close to me here in Telluride, Colorado. So how are you thinking about the two questions? I think I pretty much just summed it up when it comes to that. Do you think you're going to go yes on 300? I don't know, we'll see. Do you think you're going to go yes on 2D? Mm-hmm. You're being very elusive. <laughs> To hear KOTO's hour-long off-the-record program with proponents from both questions 2D and 300, head to koto.org and click on Off the Record under the News tab. Zombies rising from the grave might be pretty scary, but taking a stroll through a cemetery doesn't have to be spooky. It can also be educational. For the rest of October, the Telluride Historical Museum is offering lamplight cemetery tours through Telluride's historic Lone Tree Cemetery. It's a chance to hear Telluride's history through the stories of the people that lived, worked, and were buried here. Tours are every Friday till the end of the month and meet at 6 p.m. at the maintenance shed in the cemetery. More information, including how to reserve a spot, is available at telluridemuseum.org. Bear reports are down across Colorado by about a third since April, compared to the same time frame last year. That's according to Colorado Parks and Wildlife. But the agency cautions the 2021 number is growing as bears go into hyperphagia, the period when they prepare for hibernation and spend up to 20 hours a day on the hunt for 20,000 or more daily calories. Most bear reports involve the animals trying to get to human food sources. CPW is calling on Coloradans to remove attractants to reduce conflict and keep people and bears safe. In and around San Miguel County, the summer monsoon season has meant there's a bunch of natural food sources, like acorns, nuts, and berries this year. Area Wildlife Manager Rachel Strala says those are helping to keep bears away from some traditional high-conflict areas, but, quote, 
As the bear's need for calories intensifies, we may see an uptick in bear activity. Helpful tips include keeping garbage in well-secured locations, not leaving pet food or stock feed outside, and picking fruit from trees before it gets too ripe. More information on bear awareness is available at cpw.state.co.us. The nation's top authority on drought has released its operating plan for the next five years. The National Integrated Drought Information System emphasized the need for resilience. With more than 90% of the Colorado River Basin in drought and climate forecasts calling for a warmer and drier future, the agency highlighted the need for recovery and preparedness. That includes disaster relief programs for agriculture and recreation businesses, and even mental health programs for farmers whose bottom lines are suffering with less water. In the Southwest, drought has resulted in $7 billion of economic loss since 1980. The report also lays out plans to enhance a drought early warning system, which uses complex climate data from around the region to set preparations in motion when times are dry. One of Colorado's largest and most destructive wildfires started one year ago today, and the impacts of the East Troublesome Fire are still being felt in Grand Lake. The fire also raised the stakes for lawmakers and engineers who are trying to find new ways of stopping future blazes. KOTO's Scott Franz has more on the new technology the state is working on to keep residents safe, as well as some of the things that are getting in their way. One of the most powerful fire prevention tools in Colorado is not much bigger than a basketball and is housed at a large hangar at the Centennial Airport. That sound you're hearing is the device being lowered from the belly of a shiny Pilatus PC-12, an airplane that flies high above the state looking for fires no human can see. So the infrared is behind that big lens underneath. Bruce Dickin manages the state's fleet of firefighting aircraft. And then there's a color camera and there's a laser rangefinder in there. This camera can spot unattended campfires from 25 miles away. And its ability to alert firefighters to small blazes, Dickin says, is a big reason Colorado was not ravaged by larger wildfires despite ongoing drought conditions. This year we found 206 new fires so far, um, which is an all-time high for us, right? So fires that nobody knew about fires that may or may not have become large fires. But there's only two of these eyes in the sky at any given time, and they cannot see everything. The East Troublesome and Cameron Peak fires were not detected quick enough and grew to record sizes. It's what convinced lawmakers to spend money on a new firefighting tool. It's called a Firehawk, a military-grade Sikorsky helicopter that some credit with saving the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California from approaching flames two years ago. That state's governor, Gavin Newsom, has since ordered six more and uses the aircraft as a backdrop for several of his press conferences. These replace the old 1970s Huey helicopters. These are state-of-the-art. These fly much faster. They allow for more suppression and they're a lot more safe. 
Colorado's first $24 million Firehawk is being built in Inglewood and will not take to the skies until next year. In the meantime, engineers in Colorado have been testing a new technology they say is starting to revolutionize how firefighters battle wildfires down on the ground. The main technology that we've been working with is an app for smartphones. Brad Schmidt develops firefighting technology from his office in Rifle. It's called the Team Awareness Kit. And it was originally developed by the military to provide that common operating picture and real-time map of the battlefield. So, I'll just show you a video. This is what it looks like. Schmidt pulls up a simulation on his laptop and shows me how firefighters can view the exact perimeter of a blaze, along with locations of their fellow firefighters in the palm of their hand. Each person, fire engine, and aircraft appear as a small dot. The positions are refreshed every 10 seconds. They've never had this type of real-time information before, and some of them have been working in fire for 20, 30 years. Um, typically, they'll get one you know, map of the fire every 24 hours. In a lot of cases, it literally is a paper map of the fire. The technology was tested on this year's Muddy Slide fire in Route County near Steamboat Springs, as well as another blaze in California. And the supervising firefighters out on the fire line could see where the fire had grown to, and they actually made a decision to directly attack the fire rather than retreating and executing a large burnout operation. And that strategy was successful and actually kept the fire several thousand acres smaller than it otherwise would have been. But other parts of the state's response since the East Troublesome Fire are not making as much headway. We're really excited to show you some of the science that we're working on and we're going to start off out here. Senator John Hickenlooper visited a wildfire research lab in Fort Collins last month. It included a discussion with some of the state's top scientists and firefighters about how to prevent future wildfires but it turned into more of a venting session of what has not been working in recent years. We spent a million dollars on 250 homes. Gary Brees, who leads the state's Association of Fire Chiefs, complained about how expensive it was to clear trees and shrubs from his wooded neighborhood south of Castle Rock. It's nice to see. It complete, looks completely different, but we've already seen the regrowth. Federal money has also been flowing into the state for mitigation projects, but Lori Hodges, who leads the Emergency Management Office in Larimer County, says she can't use it. Because there's too many restrictions on it, and most of those restrictions are based on which lands can you use, what can you do on what lands, and then if you can't get those dollars to agree in different pots, you can't get anything done. At the end of the roundtable, I asked Senator Hickenlooper what he could do in Washington before the next fire season. There isn't very much government can do, right? We jump up and down and wave our arms and say, plan, you get rid of the shrubbery, don't have wood shakes on your roof. You know, if you're in the wood, we, you know, we scream and yell, we, do, we spend millions of dollars on average, and, and yet your heart breaks when you go out and look at one of these fires afterwards and, and you hear the stories from these families. And there's, at that point, there's not much you can just same thing with COVID. So many people now don't want to get vaccines. I'm not trying to start a, a fight around the table, but, you know, it's a free country and we allow people to run this amount of freedom, which means that, in a, in a sense, they have to take responsibility. Meanwhile, the state's Firefighting Technology Center continues to test other new methods of stopping fires from getting out of control. This includes a self-driving all-terrain vehicle that could deliver supplies to firefighters. And there are new drones that could one day replace firefighters at dangerous scenes. I'm Scott Franz in Denver. 
The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for scattered snow showers tonight with a low around 15 degrees. Friday, expect sunny skies with a high near 40 degrees. Friday night should be clear with a low in the mid-20s. Saturday calls for sunny skies with a high around 50 degrees. Saturday night, expect clear skies with a low around freezing. This has been the news for Thursday, October 14th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Man, I can't believe how much food is wasted at the end of my shift. Yeah, working at a restaurant is so hard, especially when you know how many people in our community experience hunger. Yeah, I heard that a third of people in Colorado don't have reliable access to healthy food. Whoa, that's even more than I thought. Yeah, but luckily there's an upcoming Cooking Matters class. How would a cooking class help people? Well, it teaches you how to cook fresh food on a budget and get connected to food resources. No way, that's awesome. Yeah, you even get a bag of free groceries at the end of it. Wow, I could use some free groceries, so I definitely want to go. Great. It's going to be at Tired High School on Tuesday, October 26th, and Wednesday, October 27th, from 6 to 7 p.m. Do I need to register ahead of time? Yeah, but just go to tchnetwork.org to sign up. Great. I'll see you there. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you'd like to comment, please contact staff person here at KOTO. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.